0: I haven't been this nervous since last time I was in court, I gotta say. Um, (laughs) uh, Would y'all pray with me real quick? Father of all comfort, uh, our helper when we are weak, our strength, our redeemer, please God, use the words I have to say, God, use the words you have placed and just drilled into my heart over the past six years. Help me say clearly what you have taught me. In Christ's name I pray, amen. All right, so I'm Dustin Hayes. How are y'all doing? Um, (laughs) So I want to talk today about suffering. And I'm nervous about the time, so I'm not really going to do much of an introduction. I'm just going to jump in. Uh, My life has been characterized by suffering. Basically all of it. So I've been plagued by two things. I've been plagued by suffering, and I've been haunted by the question, is God good? Is God good? And that's where I want to start today with y'all. I want to ask the question, is God good? But I want to ask it, I want to frame it in my life. So I was born and raised here in Chattanooga um, to a single mother. My mother left my father whenever she was still pregnant with me. And not having a father, of course, had its own kind of hardships and stuff like that. But also, whenever I was four years old, my mother got in a car accident, and they had to replace her jaw with metal plates. They put her on pain medication, and she got addicted to the pain pills. Well, then it grew, and she got addicted to cocaine, just looking for another high. And then it grew, and she got addicted to meth. And by the time I was 10 years old, I was being raised without a father and by a very, very desperately addicted meth addict. And this crushed my childhood. I got thrown into custody battles. My father stepped in, but at this point, I hated my father. He was never there. I could not stand him. My grandmother also stepped in, but she was dating a man who was psychologically abusive. So I hated both of the homes I was being tossed back and forth in. And I had to ask this question that I want to ask y'all. Is God good? Well, then you go a little bit more, Um, I end up living uh, in a very, very, very rough neighborhood. A lot of gangs, a lot of drugs, and a lot of violence. And it wasn't a white neighborhood. I'm white, of course, as y'all can tell. I'm not Leon. Um, And I had to prove myself by fighting because there were so many just really, really harsh gangs around me. By the time I was 15 years old, I was beat into a gang. Um, In in the projects, if y'all know where Hope for Inner City is, there's a giant field across the street. That giant field used to be where the projects were that I was beat into a gang in. But I felt like this is what I had to do. How else was I going to survive? I had already been robbed a few times. I'd already been ganged a few times. And if I didn't have people supporting me on my back, what was I going to do? And in the midst of that, I was haunted with this question looking at my life, looking at the circumstances, feeling like this is what I was pushed into. Is God good? Well, fast forward even more. Um, I end up getting a lot of respect, actually, in the gang. I end up moving up. And I want to slow down right here. Because at 18 years old, I was at a friend's house. I'm going to use aliases. Let's call him Kevin. Kevin. I was over at this guy named Kevin's house. Sorry about that, Kev. Uh, (laughs) That's the fake name I always use whenever I do this. I speak for prison prevention ministry. Didn't think about that. But I was at Kevin's house, and he had a friend. Let's call his friend just Steve. I'm going to go with something simple. Well, Kevin left, and me and Steve were sitting on the couch, and Steve was asking me for a ride. Now, I knew Steve wanted to go rob somebody. I'd heard him talking about it. He wasn't my friend, so I was a little nervous about that. I had a car at this point. I'd been working for a year. I had had a little bit of money saved up, and I was worried about Steve robbing me because we weren't cool. He was cool with Kevin, but I ended up giving him a ride. We go pick up somebody. I'm not even gonna name him. We pick up somebody. We pull up to a house, park, and I see somebody passing a black revolver up to Steve. Steve gets out of the car. Somebody gets out of the car. Steve disappears, and I'm just sitting there. And then I hear three shots. I see Steve walking back. He had went to another street. I see him walking back, and he looks calm. So that starts to calm my nerves a little bit. But whenever he gets in the car and sits down, I notice he's sweating profusely, and he's just shaking. I say, man, what happened? He said, man, it went bad. It went bad. I, I, I didn't get nothing. It went bad. I said, what do you mean it went bad? What happened? He said, man, dude grabbed a gun. I told him if he didn't let go of the gun, I was going to shoot. He didn't let go, so I shot him. I said, where'd you shoot him at? He said, man, I don't know. To make a long story short, within two days I was in jail facing 51 years in prison for murder. And then I came back to this question. Is God good? I'd heard about him all my life because I'm in the Bible Belt. It's Chattanooga, right? So how am I not going to hear? And now that was my only hope. If I had any hope, I was facing 51 years. I'd be 69 years old whenever I got out of prison, if I would have stayed. And my only hope was, this God has got to be good. So I turned, I started praying, I started seeking, and I felt silence. Um, Did they put up the image? I just wanted to give you all a visual. This is actually the pod I was in. Vernon, you're familiar with this. One of the prison prevention volunteers is here. And this is my mugshot, of course. Just, Just praying and crying out, God, please help. Now... The reason the question, is God good, was so important was because I figured, if God is good, and if I join with Him, you know, whatever this Christian thing is, surely He'll be good to me and He will let me out. And that was my reasoning. Because I was like, surely, if God is good, His people do not suffer. It seemed logical to me. So I continued to pray. On concrete floors, just tears Streaming down, God, make me one of your own. Make me like your son. Whatever the Christian language is, I just started learning it and I started trying. God, God, why am I still suffering? I want you. I want to be with you now. Why are you still making me suffering? Why am I still in there? And then, of course, at the same time I was reading the Bible. And what I wanted to discover was that the Bible would back me up. That God would have said in His Word, Christians do not suffer. And I did not find that. I did not find that at all. Instead, I came to this text and I found the story of Jesus, the man of sorrows. Homeless. Ridiculed. Beaten. Betrayed by His very own friends. Left alone on His hardest night. I came to this Scripture and I found Paul, the Apostle, the greatest preacher under jesus that we have ever known who was beaten for his faith who was stoned who was cast out of synagogues who was rejected by the people he had called his own his entire life no i found in the scriptures the exact opposite i found people came to god and then it got worse i was like well this isn't nice (laughs) so now the question became even deeper if 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 this is true, how could this God be good? If people suffered worse for following Him, if if the church was built on the blood of the martyrs, as people have said, how could God be good? I was perplexed. Couldn't figure it out. But I continued to pray. I want to share just a couple of stories, and then I'll tell you why I'm sharing them. Um, one thing that I did not mention is not only was I facing 60 when, uh, 51 years till I was 69 in, in prison, but there was also a gang who wanted me dead at the time. So I was in jail surrounded by people who wanted to kill me. I remember one time going to court, April 25th, I can't even remember which year. Oh yeah, I was there for years, by the way, if y'all don't know, I will tell y'all. But I go to court. Now, understand how court works. It's like a, about 1,000 a people in one jail, and 60 get randomly pulled out to court and go. So the likelihood of you going with somebody you know out of that 1,000 pool is very unlikely. Well, this day in court, I just happened to have went with this guy who was a Muslim who I'd been witnessing to for, for months. And we were great friends, and I loved him to death. He was there, and then there was this other guy who wasn't even supposed to be there. They accidentally pulled him out of a cell that morning. And while I'm there, the gang who wanted to kill me at the time, there was six gang members in the same holding cell at the court with us. And they figured out who I was. So they started to come towards me. They started to... And I saw exactly where it was going. I was like, all right, well, here we go. Let me go ahead and take this beating real quick and... Hope I make it through. A Muslim guy, Tristan, stepped in front of me. The other dude stepped in front of me, and they made a wall. And a guy from the other gang recognized Tristan and knew that he was a gang leader as well, and if he were to go against him, it would start a gang war. I was looking in the eyes of six men who wanted to kill me, and by God's providence, I just happened to have had two people who were willing to put their lives on the line for me. That is very rare in jail, first of all. That's very rare in life. Two people willing to stand in front of me and put their life on the line because, because God showed up. Another thing. I had this friend named Angel. I, I was in an eight-man cell, so it was hard to get privacy. Uh, if y'all think four man's and Carter are rough, like... <laughs> <laughs> but this guy named Angel would let me go use his cell and I would go to pray actually I would use his cell to pray it was, it was my prayer closet and I remember after I had been in jail for about a year and a half still didn't have any of my questions answered I was still facing 51 years All of this was still weighing on me. I remember crying out and pleading to God. God, please let me go. Why am I still here? Why am I still facing this? Why, 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 why? What's going on? And whenever I'd make it to the end of myself now, it wasn't silence. It's something that can't really be captured in words. I felt the joy and peace of Christ. That Paul talks about when he says it is beyond understanding. And I started with that question. You know, is God good? See, whenever we ask the question, is God good? We're usually asking two other questions with it. What's going on and why is this happening? God, what are you doing? God, why are you allowing this? And that's what I wanted. I wanted an answer to my what's and my why's. I wanted God to explain this to me and that's not what I got either. Instead of getting a what or a why, I got a who. And in that moment, in those moments, I got to know the comfort of God that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians. He says, as our sufferings abound, so the comforts of Christ abounds within us. I finally understood the book of Job. You have this excruciating if you try to read the book of job in suffering it's going to be rough mostly because it's just plain long it is 20 something chapters of job just complaining to a whole bunch of friends who just keep saying crappy stuff to him there's no comfort in the first i don't know how long the book is most of the book but then God shows up. But the same thing happens with Job that happened with me. See, Job was asking that there, was, there would be some sort of court set up with God. He said, if I could bring my case before God, if I could lay out my case before God, He would hear me, He would answer me, He would change this. God shows up, and what does God do? God asks him about 30 questions in response. And doesn't answer one of His. Says Job, where were you whenever I created the heavens and the earth? Job, can you tell the sea where to stop? And it's confusing. Like God, God, what are you doing? He asked you questions. Why are you not answering the questions? God knew Job did not need answer to his questions. Job needed a bigger view of his Savior. The same one that he said earlier in the book, I know my Redeemer lives. And then Job responds, before I had heard of you with the hearing of my ear, but now I have seen you. Now I have seen you. This is why C.S. Lewis writes, I now know, Lord, why you utter no answers, because you yourself are the answer, and before you the questions die away. What other answer would suffice other than you yourself? They're just words. They're just words to be sent out in battle against other words. And this is what I found out. This is the point of those anecdotes. I found that there are certain things about God we will never know apart from suffering. There are certain things about God we will never know apart from needing Him to comfort us. There are certain things that we will never know about God apart from needing Him to protect us. What meaning does the word, God is my shield, mean until you're staring at six people who want to kill you? What does it mean for God to be a comforter until you are on your knees in tears? They're just words. Words to be sent out in battles against other words. But when God Himself is there, proving those words to your heart, to your soul, you find comfort. You find healing. Well, let's recap a little bit. So I went in hoping, hoping, hoping that I would figure out suffering was something that Christians don't go through. Instead, I found that it was common for Christians to go through. And I was confused, but then I found that I knew God more because of my suffering. I knew God better because I had lost everything. I had no comforts. The psychological effects of jail are the embodiment of everything that we complain about. There you have loneliness. I couldn't see my family, I couldn't build relationships, and I cannot trust anybody I even live with. You have no opportunity, there is no economic growth, or blah, blah, blah. Nobody cares about your rights. You are a number. Go through the list of any hardship, and there's seeds of it. I promise you, in jail. I had lost everything, but I had found the answer of who is good. I remember one day, um, there's this guy named Michael Caputo. And as nervous as I was getting up here today, I'm not anymore, that's cool. Um, This guy was a nervous wreck. Um, He would just come in my cell and pace back and forth. And it didn't really bother me, but he would just do this. And it was the day before Christmas one day, and he's just walking back and forth. And he just keeps going on about how miserable he is and how horrible it is. And I don't know what in the world possessed me to say this. (laughs) But I looked up at him. I said, man, this could possibly be the best Christmas I've ever had. To which he looked at me like I was dumb and said, sucks for you. And keeps walking. (laughs) I didn't want to pound anything into him or nothing, but I realized deep in my heart, this was the first time that I had the very Savior, the very life giver, the very purpose for life close to me holding me comforting me defending me and I realized all of this has been worth it to know him well the third thing I figured out was not only was it common and not only was it a pathway to intimacy with Christ it struck me something that should have been obvious from the beginning Suffering was the very tool God used to redeem. John chapter 12 is an amazing passage. We know it as as one of the Passion Week passages. And it wasn't until far after I was in jail that I was looking back on this passage and I realized something. I was reading this passage. I want to set the image. So it's Passion Week, but it's also Palm Sunday. So he comes in on his donkey... People are throwing palm branches and yelling Hosanna. And we know that is a messianic look. So people are saying, this is the Messiah. Here's the king. Here's glory right here on this donkey. And then you have a little part in the passage where it says, Also, those who had seen him raise Lazarus from the dead were there. And then you have another little section where it says, And many Gentiles were coming to see him. So, you see, you got the Jewish people saying, This is the Messiah. You got people who have seen his miracles saying, Look at this great guy. You got Gentiles coming and see him because they're interested. It seems like Jesus' popularity is up here and he is bringing all people to him. It seems in Palm Sunday that this is the moment of his glorification. And he says, The hour has come that the Son of Man would be glorified. And you can imagine his disciples were probably like, yeah, duh, look, look at all these guys. Yeah, your hour has come to be glorified. And then he says, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and die, it remains alone. To which, like many things he said, they were probably just sitting there like, huh? And then the passage goes on, and he says, and if I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. In parentheses in my Bible it says, this he said signifying the way in which he would die. They all think that the triumph, the victorious entry into the city, is the moment of glory. And Jesus says, no, no, no. You want to know what will make me attractive to a dying world? You want to know what will make me attractive to those who are suffering in darkness? It's not me coming in on the donkey. It's me hanging bloodied on the cross. And I found that God chose not to use a throne to draw me me to Himself. The message of the cross is what drew me. The message of a Savior dying, shedding His blood for me is what drew me. Not the promises that he was the Messiah. I didn't I wasn't raised in a Jewish culture. I didn't know. But I knew this cross. I knew this bloodied cross for my sake. Now I'm at Covenant College. It's quite different here. Um, Wow, I left I left the part of my notes that I actually needed to look out somewhere else. So I want to talk about three implications. Why am I bringing this to y'all? Why am I bringing this to y'all? I don't remember what the three implications are, so I'm going to try, try just throw some stuff. <laughs> the implications are this. We want to escape suffering. We want God to fix it. We look, we are 20 years old, man. We got the world in front of us, we're trying to get a degree, we're trying to get a good job, and we're wondering, how will God use us to glorify Himself? How will God use us to exalt His name? We are asking that question, and we are looking at our calling. We are looking at our gifts. We are looking at our talents. We are looking at our connections. We're building social networking. We're, we're trying to get out there, baby. <laughs> Have we considered that the way that God wants to use us is as people who suffer well? Have we considered the fact that, as Eric McDaniels told us last year, most of us have not seen our greatest hardships yet? Most of us have not felt our greatest pains yet? Most of us still have a lot of difficulty. And have we ever considered, maybe, just maybe, God's purposes are not going to be fulfilled primarily through the positions that I hold, through the economic uh, benefits that I'm able to bestow on people, through the whatever it may be. Maybe God is going to use us to shuffer, suffer, sigh, suffer. Now that's, that's conjecture. There's nothing practical I can tell you. I'm not telling you to go look for a cross. But William Grenal has this brilliant thing that he says in a fantastic book called The, the Christian in Complete Armor. He says, Christ calls us to daily take up our cross and bear it. We should not look for a cross, but when he has not placed a cross on our shoulders, we should continually place one on our hearts. So I want to ask you, Covenant College, what is it? What is it that you take comfort in? What is it that you find security in? What is it that you hold valuable? What is it that you consider too valuable to lose? What is it that you're protecting? What is it that you're hoping for and you're placing your hope in? Don't answer God for right now. I want you to name and identify the things in your heart that you are placing your hope in. And I want you to know those will threaten to keep you from further intimacy with Christ. Because if you are not willing to give it up, you will not be willing to suffer for his name. Whenever the decision comes between Christ and this or Christ and that, you will not be willing to forfeit it. And if you are not willing to forfeit it, you will not be willing to suffer. If you are not willing to suffer, you will never know the comfort, the strength, the security that can be found when all you have is Him. So while I'm not calling you to just cast things away, I am calling you to every day evaluate your heart. What are the things? What are the things that if they were taken away, I would be threatened to say, I'm not sure God is good anymore? Name them. Identify them. Put across cross to your heart. I have one minute. <laughs> so we're going to pray. And I want that to be y'all's application. Constantly search your heart for these idols, these places of comfort, these places of deliverance in your life. And may Christ reign supreme over them. Thank y'all. Father, Father, God, as we look into our own heart, God, I know what I put my comfort in, and I know how many things I find comfort in apart from you. God, I know my temptations to rely upon myself. I know my temptations to think highly of myself and then be crushed in myself. God, I know my temptations to be anxious over financial situations. I know my temptations to look to money to try to keep my security. God, I know all of these temptations within me. I pray that your spirit would reveal more. I pray that your spirit would reveal the things that Covenant College finds comfort in. God, and I pray that you will crucify them within our heart. And I pray that you will throne yourself there. In Christ's name, amen.